Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. From a new COVID stimulus package to the latest Supreme Court nominee, the art of the compromise in Washington has been replaced with a my way or the highway mentality. Yeah, it predates President Donald Trump, but it's reached a zenith during the last four years. One man who knew how to get things done in what we'd call old Washington, James A. Baker III. He was chief of staff to Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He was secretary of the Treasury and secretary of state and a self-described pragmatist. You can't formulate and implement foreign policy according to the principles of Mother Teresa. It's too bad you can't. But if you could, we would have gone into Rwanda. If you could, we'd be in Darfur, and we we would be preventing that genocide because we're the only country in the world that has the ability militarily to do that. But the American people wouldn't tolerate it for very long. Now a new book lays out the life and times of Jim Baker. It's called The Man Who Ran Washington. It's by political journalist Peter Baker of The New York Times and Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. The husband and wife duo spent seven years writing the biography. And Peter Baker, no relation to James Baker, (laughs) joins us now for more. Peter, welcome to Reset. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So this book, you started writing it during the Obama administration. It's not necessarily just a uh, a book about how Washington was uh, back in Jim Baker's day and how it is today. Well, I think you put it exactly right. You know, the dysfunction in Washington today predates Trump. Obviously, it has been completely uh, exacerbated over the last four years, but it wasn't the creation of the last four years. I mean, the, the idea that the Speaker of the House and the President haven't spoken in a year is rather remarkable. I keep thinking about Jim Baker, who was the ultimate dealmaker, and what he would do with that COVID relief. I can't imagine the six months would go by. Right. If Jim Baker were there in charge without some sort of deal, it would, might disappoint Democrats, it might disappoint Republicans, probably would disappoint both sides, but he would have gotten a deal done if he could, because that's what his uh, career was about. He got deals with Democrats on Social Security, on taxes, on contra war, and all sorts of things, because he believed that the point of being government was to get stuff done. Yeah, and that, and that part seems to be missing in today's Washington. Surprising reading this biography of, of how many presidential administrations he touched, because James Baker had a big role in how Republican politics, or at least modern Republican politics, had been shaped. Every Republican president for a generation relied on Baker to win the White House or stay in power or exercise power or run the world. I mean, Jerry Ford makes Baker, who's, a, who's kind of come out of nowhere at age 45 to a you know obscure Commerce Department post, Jerry Ford takes him from that and makes him his campaign chairman for this uh, 1976 election. He helps Baker helps Ford beat Reagan at the 1976 convention, the last time Reagan was beaten, by the way, and almost pulls off a 33-point comeback against Jimmy Carter in the fall. They fall short. But you're right. Then he works for, of course, Reagan. He works for Bush 41, and he helps Bush 43 get into office with the Florida recount and tries to advise him on Iraq. So everything for a generation he has a fingerprint on. So it kind of goes both ways in the way that uh, Baker was such an architect and he made so many inroads and he did so many great things in Washington. But he is part of the reason why many voters voted for Donald Trump. 
Sure, he is part of the establishment. He is, in fact, a symbol in some ways of the establishment. And a lot of people who supported Trump four years ago wanted Trump to come in and bust up the establishment, not just the Democratic establishment, but the Republican establishment. He was kind of, you know, obviously the Republican, but it's a kind of a hostile takeover. That's how Jared Kushner put it to me in an interview, a hostile takeover of the old Republican Party. And, and nobody stood for that old Republican Party more than Jim Baker. Now, so this book is not a celebration of power. It's a study in power. And it, it looks at how Baker used power during his time at the top. But you're right. It, it, it's, a, it's a period in which things got done, but also did plant the seeds, arguably, for the, some of the discontent that would come later. Peter, <laughs> you talk about in the book about the art of the compromise and about uh, shepherding in this uh, the, the idea that things need to get done in Washington, because even early on, conservative Republicans didn't like the impact that Jim Baker was having on the Reagan administration. That was something that, that they thought he, he wasn't he wasn't uh, shrewd enough. He wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, lined up with the conservative values enough. Yeah, that's right. During Reagan's time, you heard this phrase, let Reagan be Reagan. And that was really a jab at Jim Baker, because the assumption was that Jim Baker, as his White House chief of staff, was somehow holding back Reagan, was holding him back from the conservative cause, and that Baker was an insufficiently committed uh, Reaganite. But in fact, you know, Baker was a pragmatist. He looked at Reagan's agenda, and he helped translate it into reality. But he, it was cold-eyed look at it. So Reagan promises, for instance, in 19... 19- 80 campaign to get rid of the Department of Education. Well, Baker basically puts that to the side because there's no point in banging your head against a Democratic House on it. He's never going to win. Instead, he focuses on the things he can win on, like Reagan's tax cuts, his economic program, uh, additional military spending. And so Baker is a hard-eyed pragmatist who tried to take a conservative vision uh, and translate it into reality, sometimes the disappointment of conservatives who didn't think he got far enough or wouldn't be enough of a, uh, you know, a crusader, but Baker's view was, and it was the same as Reagan's, Reagan, he, he would always quote Reagan saying, I'd rather get 80% of what I want than fly my flag going over the cliff mm-hmm. trying to get something I couldn't get. There's something so ingrained in what you just said about politics in Washington today, because now it feels like any sort of compromise seems to be uh, a sign of weakness. That's right. Exactly. Compromise has become a dirty word in Washington. And the, and the incentive structure has changed. Back in Reagan's day and before Reagan, Reagan and Bush's day during Carter and you know Truman or whatever, there was an incentive for being bipartisan, right? If you were a member of Congress, you wanted to find somebody from the other party to sign on to your bill, and you go to the House press gallery, and you guys would announce it and hold up hands and say, see, we're in this together, mm-hmm. and there would be a political reward. Today, you would be punished for doing that. It would be assumed on your, on your party, whatever party you might be in, that you were sold out. If you're working with the other side, therefore, your bill must not actually do anything important. And it's, the incentive structure has changed because of the fragmentation of the media, because of gerrymandering, because of the need to fundraise. You know, everybody's playing to their own tribal base rather than trying to reach out to a broader middle. One of the great things about the book is is really getting to understand a little bit more about who he was. He didn't start working in D.C. until he was in his 40s, which is very yeah. unheard of when you're when you're talking about, uh, you know, career politicians. Uh, why did he get involved in politics at, at such a, a stately age? Yeah. So we love doing this book because it's a story about Washington. That's why we called it the man who ran Washington. But it is also a story about a man, right, about an individual, a person. And his personal story was really captivating to us. He he was a son and grandson and great-grandson of Houston aristocracy. These are the, this is the family that helped build modern Houston, and they stayed out of politics. And he did, too, until he was around 40 or so. And it really is the death of his first wife that kind of begins to change that. His friend from the Houston, tennis, uh, Houston Country Club tennis court 
George H.W. Bush says to him after Jim Baker's first wife dies, come work with me on my Senate campaign. It'll help you with your grief. It will give you something to focus on. And it did. And Baker found that he not only liked politics, but he had kind of a, a, an instinct for it. And suddenly from there, his life you know, changed. We always call it the, probably the most successful midlife career change we can think of in modern politics. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, before being Secretary of State, ran campaigns, but also became the chief of staff uh, for Reagan. And surprising, I mean, so like that he had actually run the campaign against Reagan. And he liked him so much that he made him chief of staff. But it shows how much uh, Secretary Baker at the time was was respected by his party. I think it says something about Reagan. I think it says something about Baker, right? I think Reagan was more of a pragmatist than people give him credit for, perhaps. And you're right, Baker had run not one even, but two campaigns against him, because he had run Ford in 1976, and he ran Bush in the 1980 primaries that, uh, in which he came up slightly short of, the, of beating Reagan in that nomination battle. And yet Reagan saw something in him, and Reagan's people saw something in him, that they felt they could harness, you know, that this is somebody who could help them get their agenda through. And when we when we talk about uh, Secretary Baker, I mean, obviously, uh, we talk all we want about his uh, who he was as a man, but also just, you know, how he has led the Republican Party. But all, a lot on the other side of the aisle, Democrats will remember him for the recount in 2000, where he came in to run yep. the recount in Florida. There wasn't a lot of compromise at all in that situation. Uh, James no. Baker was the voice of, of Republicans wanting to restricting any sort of recount in Florida. I think that's had a lasting impact on his career, that he was involved in such a monumental moment in American history. Exactly. I think the one thing that people forget is just because Baker was a statesman as a secretary of state doesn't mean he wasn't also a partisan. And this is why he's one of the most interesting characters in our modern times, because he did marry politics, partisan politics, ruthless, cutthroat politics, with statesmanlike compromise and bipartisanship, right? For Baker, an election was about the grubby business of getting to office. And he would do what was required, ask Michael Dukakis, right, from the 1988 campaign when they ran the Willie Horton and flag-waving and Pledge of Allegiance campaign against him. You know, Baker is no softy. But once it was over, it was over. And that's the difference, right? Once it was over, literally a month after that election in 1988, Baker is having dinner at the home of Robert Strauss, who had been the DNC chairman with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House. And they're trying to figure out a way to solve the Contra War, which had so dominated the 1980s. And that's what you don't see today. People today, it's almost the opposite. They get into office in order to set up the next election rather than to run an election in order to, to, to get into office to do things. Yeah. All roads lead back to, to President Trump. And, you know, you had the opportunity to interview uh, Secretary Baker for the book, for the biography. And he talks about uh, his relationship because he was on where he was one of the Texas Republicans who did not endorse Donald Trump in 2016. But you know, at the end of the day, he goes into the ballot booth and he's a Republican. I think that his story resonates with a lot of Republicans who may not like President Trump, but still believe in the Republican Party. Yeah, I think that's right. I think his story is a parable of the modern Republican Party as it struggles to come to terms with what Trump means for them, right? So we spent seven years on the book, but five years of that Trump suddenly is on the scene, and we had these periodic conversations with Baker about that, listening to him wrestle with these issues, right? Trump is the unbaker. He's everything Baker is not, both in terms of ideology on free trade and, and, and internationalism and alliances, but also on his approach to governing. And, you know, Baker's not about de- divisiveness. He's not about bombast. He's not about, you know, carnival-like behavior. He's a serious guy with a certain you know degree of dignity and civility, at least when he's in public office. And, and yet, he can't, you know, he couldn't break himself 
from Trump entirely. He wouldn't endorse him. That was his compromise in effect, but he did vote for him. And I think that's where a lot of Republicans are. They may not be happy with Trump. It may not be their cup of tea, but in the end, he is their candidate, and they feel like they have to stick by him because he's better than the left and the liberals who they see as being too far. Baker actually, I think, likes Biden. I think he identifies with Biden more than he identifies with Trump on everything other than party and ideology, perhaps. I think that Biden would like to be what Baker was, which is to be a, a deal maker. And he did, as vice president and as senator, spent a lot of time making deals with Republicans. He does have these relationships across the aisle. And there was a moment when we had lunch with Jim Baker one time in Washington about a year ago, and he says, yeah, I, I think I could possibly vote for Joe Biden if he wins the nomination. And then he changes his mind a couple months later. He says, no, I don't do that. I'm not going to leave my party, even though my party has left me. But I think if Biden becomes president, Baker will feel comfortable with that, not on the policies, but on the, the way Biden chooses to govern. You know, obviously, there will be much made of this as we get closer and closer to Election Day and, and uh, the results on Election Night or hopefully Election Night. When you spend this many years on a, on a biography on someone like Secretary Baker, do you see hope for the future of the American government? Do you, do you get cynical as a writer, as a reporter uh, about this being a bygone era, or is it possible it can return? That's a good question. You know, we, we obviously tend to think this is such a divisive period, which it is. It's such a polarizing moment, which it is. But our country's gone through this in cycles, right? There have been periods like this, and then we, and then we you know, the ebb and flow of time has changed. We had, obviously, the most divisive period in our history was the Civil War. So it's not like, it, you know, we're anywhere near as bad as things were then. But it doesn't mean that we can suddenly become this, you know, I don't want to romanticize the past either, because I don't think it, it was suddenly like the 80s and the 90s were periods of kumbaya, where everybody just held hands and loved each other. Right. It was a right. fiercely right. competitive time, but it was different. It, there was a sense that at the end of the day, you had to get something done, and that even if you didn't win everything you wanted, uh, you know, you had a competition of ideas, and it wasn't about personal destruction in the way we see today. Yeah. Peter Baker of the New York Times, co-author of the new book about Secretary James Baker III. It's called The Man Who Ran Washington. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today, and congrats on the book. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. And that's today's Reset. For more great conversations like this one, make sure you subscribe to the podcast or ask your smart speaker to play WBEZ's Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.